0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's very special episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Zhao, and today I sit down with Bill McNabb, former CEO of Vanguard, one of the world's largest and most critical financial services firms with over $6 trillion under management. Bill climbed the Vanguard ladder to become their CEO in 2008, just before the financial crisis, and then led the company for 10 years. He serves on the board of a few tiny companies you might have heard of, including IBM, United Healthcare, and Axiom, and is the chairman of Ernst & Young's Independent Audit Committee. He is a proud Wharton MBA alum and is involved with numerous charitable organizations in Philadelphia and beyond. On today's great episode, Bill and I cover a ton, including his background and long journey from teaching high school students to getting a Wharton MBA to becoming the CEO of Vanguard, his most critical leadership lessons and what crisis leaders can learn from American prisoners of war, how Vanguard has positioned itself and will continue to position itself during the great rise of fintech and personal wealth management, including a close-up look at Wealthfront, the implications of the GameStop Robinhood fiasco, his thoughts on Publix tipping model, his huge interest in the tokenization of assets and blockchain, the double-edged sword of ESG and the importance of transparency, the fintech startup he's now on the board of, and so much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Bill is fantastic in today's episode. Without further ado, let's get started. Hi, Bill, and welcome to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. It is fantastic having you on, the former CEO of Vanguard, and of course, a Wharton alum.
1: Thanks, Ryan. Happy to be here and uh, look forward to it.
0: And for those who are listening at home, Bill has donned a wonderful Wharton quarter zip. I really appreciate the swag. (laughs) Hey, you know, it's uh, one thing about getting on campus fairly frequently
1: is I've collected a good amount of Wharton swag, so I get to be out here (laughs) sort of as a walking ambassador
0: Well, Bill, you have had just an incredible career, rising the ranks from mid-level employee to CEO at Vanguard, the old-fashioned way, over 20-plus years. There's a lot we're going to get to today, but I want to start with you, your background, and of course, your journey to Vanguard. Can you just walk our listeners through a young Bill's life until you got to Vanguard?
1: Yeah, so I have what I would call an unconventional path. I graduated from undergrad. I was at Dartmouth College. And I came to the Philadelphia area actually to be a teacher. And I taught first-year Latin to uh, teenage boys at a boys' school. And uh, I think the real reason I was hired was not that I was a classics major, but that I could coach three sports and I was relatively inexpensive. So I did that for a number of years. And then I was fortunate enough to find my way to the Wharton campus and uh, went to Wharton. And because of my background being a, uh, you know, government major as an undergrad and having taught the classics. I went heavy, heavy on the finance and accounting that Wharton, especially in those days, was so famous for. I think I took the accounting major sequence of accounting courses, every finance course, theoretical or not, that I could get my hands on. And I just felt I needed that sort of more technical skill set and then I ended up on, uh, you know, working right off Wall Street for what's now J.P. Morgan Chase, and I did a number of things there. Include I taught their training program to new MBAs. I also worked on really bad leverage buyout. In effect, we were the precursor <laughs> to the bank's private equity arm, where right. at that point a lot of the private equity oriented stuff that the bank evolved into was all around turnaround. So it was financial engineering. And taking an equity stake in something that had gone bad and trying to turn it around. And, and then I got a fateful call just a couple of years later from a, a friend of mine who had been a uh, worked in career services at Wharton uh, when I was a student there. And he said, I've got good news and bad news. And he said, and I said, well, give me the bad news first. He goes, well, I have a really interesting job that will not sound like anything that you've been thinking about. And I'm like, okay, so what's the good news? He goes, I think you're going to like the company. And it was Vanguard. The title of the job, which I we challenge your listening audience, see if anybody can figure out what it means, was GIC product manager. And I'll just leave it at that. It was very esoteric. I had no clue. And of course, this is pre internet days. So I had to run to the library and see if I could find some reference to it. It's actually a type of investment product that was issued. Just to retirement plans. And um, Vanguard was looking for somebody to sort of run that program as we were getting into the 401k business. I had no background at, at all, but I interviewed with everybody. You know, we were a tiny firm, a few hundred people, uh, had just hit 20 billion under management. And our founder, Jack Bogle, interviewed every candidate who wasn't pure entry level. I was one wow. step up. So I had an hour and a half with him. and he basically, the hardest question he asked was, why would you do this? Like, why would you leave Wall Street? I'm here, you know, we're a tiny company and we're barely right. making it. But, you know, I like the values and I like some of the people I met and I miss Philadelphia, frankly, you know, that had some element of it. And then uh, I had a, this great mentor who was actually a former coach of mine, who was almost like a second father. And he's like, you don't belong on Wall Street.'" you belong here in the Philly area and you belong, you know, doing something that matches your values a little bit more. And one thing that really jumped out about Vanguard was sort of purpose-driven organization it was, and Jack really hammered fundamental values as did the senior leadership team. So I took a flyer and sometimes it's, you know, I think it was an informed flyer, but you know, there's certainly a big element of luck involved.
0: Well, Vanguard turned out to be the right place for you. So Jack and your friend at the Career Center were right, because as I mentioned earlier, that then sent you on a 20-plus year journey to CEO of one of the largest and most storied financial firms in the world. So let's discuss this long path. So you started working with GICs, which, if memory serves, are guaranteed investment contracts. That's an annuity product, right? Yeah,
1: that's exactly right, Ryan. It's a guaranteed investment contract it's like a fixed income instrument issued by insurance companies and banks to 401k plans. Mm-hmm. So I took that on and it became pretty clear that that was 25% of, of the job the other 75% was actually working on new product development and one of the best things that happened to me in literally my first year was the head of new product development asked me to take over the whole product development function and I kept the guaranteed investment side, you know, I hired somebody in to do that and then got very involved in sort of new fund development, which that got me working a lot with our president, Jack Brennan, a lot with our chairman, CEO, Jack Bogle. And it was a period where there was a lot of creativity and new development of funds. So I did that for a number of years. And then probably the assignment that changed me for life was getting sent over to the 401k business. And and, and I didn't really have a job title. It was We hired a new guy to run our 401k business it's a mess we're going to have to re-engineer the whole thing follow him around do whatever he says and learn as much as you can that was literally the job description i was given a little different today we're a little more formal than that but i ended up taking over sales and marketing fairly quickly which essentially got me pretty heavily involved in the strategic development of the business and You know, we built that business into a trillion-dollar-plus business, became one of Vanguard's mainstays. And eventually, I grew into running the whole business, and that's how I joined the executive team at Vanguard. You know, we call it our senior staff. It was, for most companies, like a management committee, if you will, so the top 10 people who ran the different functions and businesses. And that happened, you know, at a pretty young age in sort of the mid-'90s, and I was working for our second CEO, Jack Brennan. And we went through the whole transformation of first generation to second generation. So I got to watch a CEO transition up close and personal. I got to be very involved in sort of pivoting the strategy to a much more technologically oriented strategy, the web. And we were very early to see the potential of the web. And uh, to Jack Brennan's great credit, he basically turned us loose and said, you know, come to me with ideas but he says you know the budget is there if you can make your case and we developed pretty quickly you know vanguard.com and it ultimately became the way we do everything today you know we had never had physical presence so we were virtual but virtual in in the early days was post office box and telephone (laughs) big breakthrough there was you know toll-free telephone you know Mm 1-800 right so this pivot to the web and getting to be part of that right from the get-go, and it was actually the 401k business that was the first step in that direction. And I learned a lot you know, in that process. And then I became part of Jack's senior team and I took on different functions there, eventually running the different client businesses. And then early 08, before the crisis had really hit it, you know, we were seeing some of the signs of tough times to come. Um, Jack surprised everybody by retiring right? and uh, asked me to take his place. And I think officially it was two weeks before Lehman Brothers. So, um,
0: that's some good timing by Jack leaving you to hold a yeah. bag. He, he was a <laughs> great, he's a great market timer. If you ever want,
1: I don't believe in market timing except when Jack Brennan makes a call. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it turned out to in some ways be a great thing because in the middle of the crisis, we had a lot of different things go on and. Uh, I had a great board who constantly challenged us to be thinking about how are you going to emerge different? And we did a lot of really hard roll up your sleeves, self-reflection on what had made us successful, but what was it going to take on the back end of this thing? And we didn't get everything right, but we got a lot of it right. And we worked with the great Jim Collins who wrote the book, Good to Great, which I still think is probably the single best textbook on how to run stuff. And he was very provocative, which helped us sort of sharpen our focus. And when we emerged coming out of the crisis, we had some real great momentum and ability to move quicker, I think, than a lot of our competition. And that actually made a pretty big difference. And if you look at Vanguard today, so going into it, we were probably about a trillion dollars under management. And a decade later, we were five trillion plus under management. That number is now six plus trillion and half of that is reflective of businesses products or services that we started during the crisis and pivoted the company partly etfs obviously being one that everybody would be familiar with our global efforts much more significant than they were so those decisions that were made in the middle of the crisis actually you know end up now defining half the company which i think is you know that's one of those lessons when i'm in front of you know a wharton class i often talk about the need to constantly reinvent what you do and who you are, even if you're successful. In fact, even more so when you're successful, because you can get complacent. And if you get complacent, you eventually become irrelevant.
0: So Bill, can you you know, maybe share what you learned from the two Jacks to guide you in this time of crisis and maybe the biggest learnings that they each imparted on you as you prepared to take over as CEO?
1: Again, I, I will give our I will give both my predecessors huge credit. Jack Bogle loved to talk about creative destruction, which was an Austrian economist term, a, a Schumpeter who talked about the power of creative destruction, and it really spoke to the need to, in a sense, blow things up before complacency can set in. And interestingly, when you 25 years after he was talking about it, Clay Christensen wrote the book, The Innovator's Dilemma, where he basically said the same thing. And then Jack Brennan, I always describe it, you know, who was my boss for so long, as the most relentlessly dissatisfied leader I've ever met. He was a great leader, but he never was happy with like, okay, that's great, but what are we going to do next? And that kind of mantra really helped our people and, and the ones who could embrace that and come to grips with it, did really, really
0: well. Mm-hmm. So last question on this before moving on, you took over, you know, as you said, at the very start of the OA crisis, what did your first 100 days look like there? And what can today's leaders learn from your first 100 days in that crisis? So first of
1: all, I would tell you today's crisis is at one level, way more complicated because right. we had social justice in the middle, challenges in the middle of all this plus the length of time being out of the office. And when health is you know, a fundamental concern, that's an, another dimension. I would say the economic impact of this has probably been greater too, but the, the threats to the capital markets and the banking system were probably greater in, in the GFC. So look, I think there were a couple of really key things that we learned during that. And I, it's been fun watching the team in place. They're, just, they're taking it to another level. But the fundamental lesson was this concept, sometimes referred to as the Stockdale Paradox, uh, named after a a famous admiral in the Navy who was a, a pilot shot down during Vietnam, and he was a prisoner of war for seven years. And the paradox is, he was asked what kind of people survived being in a prison camp for seven years. And he said, well, the guys who were most optimistic about getting out were actually the first to die. People who were the most pessimistic, like there's no chance they were right behind them. And he said, it was the people who were able to do confront the brutal reality of the current situation and sort of make decisions day to day, how am I going to survive? But who had a long-term vision for what the other side would look like. And if you sort of apply that to the business world, the big lessons for us were you got to execute like crazy every day during a crisis and speed is important and you make decisions. You have to create frameworks so that you can make decisions rapidly. And some of those are going to be wrong and then you got to fix them and you got to just keep moving very fast, but very day to day. But at the same time, you know, once you sort of begin to go, okay, we will get through this. You have to really begin to paint that picture of what the other side is going to look like and how are you going to be positioned for that? So we actually did all of our key strategy work right in the middle of a crisis. So we're meeting three times a day on one hand to just make sure operationally, everything right. was going the way it should. And at the same time, we began to dream about what could we look like on the back end of this thing? What would be different regulatory-wise, competitive-wise, demographically, all those things. And then we were able to create a strategy around that. And so, you know, it's interesting I'll use Vanguard and I'll use two companies as examples that I'm familiar with. And I think the audience will too. So Vanguard, you know, we're going through the crisis, just like everybody else, everybody's working from home. So in the middle of this, the team pulled off three huge things. So one, we launched a private equity offer. for private equity to be brought to, you know, a mutual fund world is a big deal. A lot of people have been trying to do it. We'll see how it goes, but they literally created this and launched it in the middle of the crisis. The second thing the team did is it created a partnership to change the way we do the record keeping and administration of 401k plans. And we've partnered with another firm, Infosys, who's going to actually take over a lot of those functions. That's a massive change. I mean, that's thousands of moving pieces. And again, all being done while we're still virtual. And then Tim has added two new members to his senior team and moved two people into uh, very different roles to sort of be ready for what he thinks are the next big sets of challenges again, all while working virtually and trying to just get through day to day. And, you know, how do we keep our traders safe? How do we keep, you know, the buildings where we do have a few people in sanitized? Yeah. So all that operational stuff going on while at the same time doing three big strategic things, you know, with talent, with a whole business line and product. You know, IBM, I'm on the IBM board and we'll see how this all plays out. But, you know, we had one CEO retire and we had to pick a new CEO and he had to take over in April of last year. Can you imagine? You know, I thought I had it rough. Oh um, my you know, God. Harvard, who's just, you know, doing a brilliant job for us. Right. And we announced in the middle of all that, oh, by the way, we're going to change the nature of the company. We're going to split the company into two pieces. Um, this is all public. And again, they're doing all this in the middle of a crisis. I could give you, you know, 10 other examples, but you get the idea that the companies that are really being thoughtful about this, they're managing both the short term intensely, but also with an eye toward the long term.
0: So throughout your tenure as CEO of Vanguard, you, of course, experienced this just huge rise in fintech. Maybe the most famous trend of the last decade that really put fintech on the map was the rise in robo-advisors, you know, the wealth fronts and betterments of the world, and zero commission trading. When did you first start to notice these trends and how did Vanguard start positioning itself?
1: Yeah, let me start with the Robo side because I think it's a lot of ways easier than the other side. Robo, you know, we actually had ver- version of Robo beginning in the late 90s, early 2000s. And we were a decade ahead in a sense, but Financial Engines was a, a really cool startup The concept was created by Bill Sharp, who was again a Nobel laureate and uh, you know one of the great thinkers about investment theory, right? So um, we actually got exposure to them when they were in their inception stage, and we ended up being one of their first early partners, and it became actually a big part of our offer. And it was successful, but uh, to be fair, you know, we didn't fully like get the bigger thing, and. I would tell you, probably about two years after Wealthfront was started, we met with the founders and we had a real... In fact, we brought in the venture capitalists, talked to our board about what was happening there. And you know he basically predicted that companies like Vanguard would be out of business if they didn't figure out this space uh, more clearly. I don't think that was quite true, but it was the real wake up to his credit. That's what a board should challenge a uh, management team around. I think the great thing about what they did and what Betterment did and a couple of the others is they redefined what could be done, a price point that nobody believed possible. And again, your podcast listeners probably know way more about Wealthfront than I do, but one of the things that was so cool is the way they approached it. They came at it with a, a real blank sheet of paper. Like We got all these software engineers out there making a lot of money In the valley they don't know where to invest they need advice but they don't want to go to a traditional broker or financial planner or financial advisor in fact they don't want to talk to anybody they just want to do it but they need high level help and they're not going to go for simple models so rather than sort of rely on what had traditionally been done the founders of Wealthfront went out and they hired the best software engineers on the planet and said here's the problem and then they hired you know as advisors to actually former Vanguard board members who had written a book on indexing Charlie Ellis and Burt Malkiel two of the most famous writers in sort of popular financial literature ever random walk down wall street and winning the losers game and they said create the rules if you will you know of investing for our engineers and you know the offer was you know, when I first looked at it, I'm like, this is pretty cool. And of course, I love the fact that it recommended a lot of Vanguard ETFs. So, you know, that part was very gratifying. But what was really interesting was the level of advice was way beyond what some of the simple models were, you know, creating. And it was pretty sophisticated. The user interface was really slick. And they were doing this all for like 25, 30 basis points cost of the product, right? And, you know, for me, it was like, Uh, there's a better way out there. And that actually drove us to develop our own version, which as you know, is it's kind of a hybrid. You know, we try to use the same kind of technology and really thoughtful engineering to create very sophisticated advice. You can have multiple goals, multiple tax situations, and we will actually advise the whole thing very holistically. And we'll start at 30 basis points and ratchet it down. So the whole thing comes in at well under half a percent. And the difference between what we did and what they did is we felt that once people got to a certain dollar amount, there might be needs to talk to a person. Even our millennial investors who claimed they didn't want to, when we tested it, the concept, right. it was like, hey, you have a hundred thousand dollars in your account and you're not quite sure what's going on in the marketplace. Oh, I want to call somebody. So we then paired the technology with highly, highly skilled professionals who were all certified financial planners or in process of getting that certification, that business has exploded. You know, so we tested it in like 2015, 2016. Today, it's a $200 billion business. You can take better Wealth Front and the next 10 guys and combine them and you're about half that. Right. So it's wildly successful, but I'm always, this is the power of really cool ideas that were coming out of FinTech. You can take those ideas and you evolve them. And other people are doing the same thing and doing some really cool things as well. And those firms themselves are evolving in what they do. And so it's it's pretty interesting. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, but it's a, it's a pretty important concept. You know, the second trend you talked about, the commission free, you know, everything's been moving toward low-cost invest. Right. And, you know, the commission free stuff, you know, nothing's truly for free. But, you know, the Robin Hoods of the world and the other no commission platforms, and you know, we do. Some no commission platforms. We do it a little bit differently than others, but many of them are using payment for order flow, you know, as one way of compensating. By the way, that's not a bad thing. It's people have made it out to be very evil. It's not. It depends how it's done. There are regulations that if people are following the regulations, actually protect the retail investor. But the one thing I don't like about it, and this will probably be unpopular with some of your audience, is you know, w- watching this whole GameStop thing in particular just reminded me of day trading. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, at the end of the day, as a retail trader, you are going up against legions of professionals, billions of dollars of technology. And you may win occasionally, may win sometimes, but I'm telling you the house money is going to take the vast majority of people over a long, over a full market cycle. They're going to fall short and nobody is talking about that because again, if you're Robin hood, and again, I'm not picking on them, you know, cool concept, but the bigger their platform, the more people, the more order flow they can sell, the more they make out as a company. And there's real power there. You know, I, my mother was one of the world's great day traders, the last go-round. And I always said, mom, you know, you, you spend a couple hours every day watching MSNBC and you watch them Kramer religiously. I said, you're going up against 150,000 CFAs who work 16 hours a day have the best technology on the planet right. and collectively collectively, they fall short of the market. so what does that tell you? Well, Jim Kramer has a lot of really good ideas you know I mean we, we, and you <laughs> know in you
0: and, and that you as the CEO of vanguard Mike yeah you
1: know, eventually, eventually it all comes around and so I don't want to sound overly paternalistic, but what you want people to go in eyes wide open. And there will be winners. It's just like, you know, when people go to a casino, some people win. But again, you guys are way better versed in math these days. You know, at Wharton, when I was there, the math was pretty basic. You know, now we make you guys much more sophisticated thinkers about this stuff. You know the probabilities. Like if you go to a casino consistently, the house wins, right? It's math at the end of the day. The same thing is true of the marketplace. You know, for every person who outperforms, somebody's got to underperform. It's a zero-sum game. There's no free lunch. So, and we got a lot of professionals who are going to be very close to the market. So that means where there are big winners on the retail side, they're going to be big losers. And over time, the data are overwhelming on that. So, so it's been cool to see, but that's my big concern. And you know what I think is actually going to happen, and what's going to be really interesting is this experience. So this whole democratization of trading and everybody running around with their hot ideas and Reddit pushing this and somebody else pushing that. We're going to find out that maybe there's a little more to it than that. I think it's going to bring many young investors in particular back to the wealth fronts, the betterments, the Vanguard advice services where, okay, I had my fun there. Maybe I made a little money. Maybe I lost money. I got to get serious and I need a really disciplined way of low cost, but really high quality. And I want it on my phone. I want access whenever I need it. I think it's you're going to see a whole like, continued evolution/slash revolution in, in that advice space. So I think we're at like robo 1.5. We need to get to 3.0. And uh, I think that's
0: coming. There's so much to respond there, Bill. Wow. But you know, first on the last point that you made about the evolution of these robos and brokerages, you know, we're really starting to see so much more innovation around the community aspect and the revenue model. We've had a lot of guests come on to talk about Robo and Wealth Management this last quarter, including Wealthfront's CEO, Robinhood's COO, a partner from Bessemer, the CEOs of Acorns, RallyRoad, Public.com, and a lot more. Now, on that last company, Public, I kind of think of it as if you know Robinhood had a soul. It's a commission-free brokerage, but anchored on a very supportive community for relatively new investors with an educational and crowdsourcing focus. And during the pay-for-order flow controversy, they stopped doing pay-for-order flow the next day and instead moved to an optional tipping model for their customers. Their CEO, Life Abraham, was just great on the podcast. I thought it was a preposterous business model and I thought it would definitely scare away a lot of folks. But just a few weeks later, they raised $100 million in a new round, valuing them at over a billion dollars. I'm curious as, you know, given your position do you have an opinion on this business model? Look, I think
1: you're going to see a whole range of stuff, Ryan. And that's the craziest one I've heard. But you know whether it's sustainable or not, we'll see. But I think the thing that you could move to is it's always important to understand what's really, in a sense, the underlying theme. And the thing that's brilliant about what they did, so I'm going to give them full credit for it, they're transparent. Payment for order flow is not transparent. Now, again, I could make a really good case as to, for most retail investors, it's actually benefited them. And there's liquidity that wouldn't be there and good pricing, and they're generally benefiting from it. And, you know, there is this regulation that the SEC has about best execution. So even when you're taking, pay, you know, the critics always say payment for order flow, you're just being bribed to sell your order for whatever maximum thing. And once upon a time, that was true, you know, when there was less regulation around it. But today, you still have to be able to show over a cycle that you're getting best execution. And that's the protection that the retail investor has. But it's not transparent, right? Like, how much are they making? You know, how much price advantage am I actually getting? It's really hard to figure out. It's impossible to figure out, actually. So the tipping concept, that's, I know exactly what I paid for. So what's important to me is not the fact that it's a tipping model. What's important to me is the transparency. And I think there's going to be a real trend toward more transparency around costs and fees, how somebody making money versus not. And I think that's actually a really good thing.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a crazy idea. I go back and forth on it all the time. But the principle is, you know, as you said, 100% aligned with where the industry is headed. And Vanguard has, of course, been the flag bearer for low cost and, you know, investor first type of products. So I'm sure this rings true for you. So going off of this, you know, there are so many trends here, especially the democratization of these products coming to retail and the commoditization of good financial products. How is Vanguard positioning itself for the next 10 years with you know the kind of product differentiation almost completely removed?
1: So there's a lot there, but um, a couple of big ideas. Um, so one, I actually think this advice thing and people needing more help is going to be a long-term trend. So it's something that's been building. It feels like it's taken a step back with everybody out there trading away. I guarantee you when there's a 20% market correction, all of a sudden, there's going to be a rethinking. So we have invested at Vanguard just massive amounts of money in getting advice right and advice in lots of different flavors. And so you've got this hybrid model that I talked about, which is the core. You now have a digital only. That's rolling out all around the world, getting great receptivity in markets that you would not expect it to. That's a big trend. in a sense, that ship is sailing, and the team is really going to push it. Now, there'll be huge evolutions, not revolutions, around how that gets delivered, what you do in in what you do to complement it from a service standpoint. And there, I think, you know, we're going to keep very connected to the ecosystem, which I want to come back to. But that's a huge trend because if you think about a product commoditization for traditional liquid long-only markets, you know, stocks, bonds, cash, there's not a lot more you can do there. The fees on ETFs in some cases are zero. It's a race to the bottom. It's a race to the bottom. So, so much of it's going to be around financial planning and advice and so forth. That's just huge. And AI is going to play a role. You know, the digitalization of the experience is going to continue to be a huge trend. So that that's all going to happen. You know, the other couple things you and I talked a little bit about in an early minute, you know, tokenization of other assets. Absolutely, um, I think that's coming big time and it may come, probably there'll be some fits and starts and but blockchain makes a lot of things possible that weren't, and I think there's an awful lot there, and you know, as an investor, wouldn't it be great to diversify further from traditional stocks and bonds and cash into infrastructure, but in a way that doesn't completely kill you from a liquidity standpoint? Now you will give up some return because some of the return in those asset classes is definitely a liquidity premium. But if the source of return and pattern of return is different than that of more traditional asset classes, again, the diversification impact there, if you can get the same return with lower volatility, that's in a portfolio setting, that's a win. So I think tokenization is going to happen. It's going to happen a big time. And you'll see the private this convergence of private markets and public markets continue. Again, I mentioned RPE efforts, but other people are pushing this concept. So I think that's going to happen. I think the other big thing to keep an eye on is just the impact of ESG. And what we're beginning to, we're seeing so many different flavors of ESG. So many of the ESG product construction are what I call around exclusionary things. So it's, I don't want any fossil fuels in my portfolio. And I'm part of my problem with the way it's evolving right now is purveyors of those products don't necessarily tell you what the risks are. You know, The risks are you may miss out on a, a piece of the market that outperforms over a period of time, and are you prepared for that? There's a famous study. You know, if you looked at 100-year returns in equities, some of the SIN stocks, so to speak, actually outperform the market by a lot. So if you didn't Hold tobacco, you didn't hold alcohol, whatever. And again, I'm not making any judgments there. All I'm saying is you gave up return. And as long as you know you're doing that, and the product providers, this idea that these exclusionary things, these screens, will lead to better performance—that's an illusion. It's true sometimes, and it's not true other times. What's really interesting to me about the, on ESG though is where people are actually flipping the question around, saying, "Who are the best?" Actors around these themes, like who's got great governance? Who's actually doing things from a social impact standpoint that make them a better business? Who's managing climate risk in a way that gives them a competitive advantage? And so you're now seeing what I call inclusive strategies where people are actually looking at ESG dimensions as a source of long term performance, not short term, long term performance. I'm really intrigued by that. Now, again, does it work? We'll see. But I think it's a huge trend. And I actually think both. I think investors are going to want to dial up or down based on their own social frameworks, if you will, uh, what they want from an exposure standpoint. And I think providers are going to have to be really prepared to do that. And I think there's just going to be a lot of innovation. I think there'll be a lot of nonsense in that marketplace, to be blunt. But the innovation opportunities are great and if it's done well it could be just a huge boon to retail investors
0: yeah bill you know this ramping up and down and intense personalization of strategies that you brought up is definitely growing and completely agree i think any wealth or asset manager moving forward needs to be able to flex across a lot of different value-based strategies the access to private markets too you know in our previous conversation we had talked about the otis's republics i capitals and forges of the world You know, democratizing access to such strong private companies and startups, but also to the passion economy, you know, sneakers and collectibles. It's just great to see that people are finally able to invest in things that they know and are passionate about. And back to ESG, we can mention public again. They're getting a lot of free publicity on this podcast, but their CEO came on and said that in the wake of the George Floyd murder, people on the app were pouring money into the four Fortune 500 companies that were led by black CEOs. Yeah. And you know that just meant more to the investor than pure alpha.
1: And what I what I love about the movement is, again, I couldn't agree with you more, matching what people want to do and the ability to do it. The key, and this is the key to the providers, the key to the providers, again, is to be completely transparent. Like, here is what you're getting. So if you're an investor and you over... Index to those four stocks because you want to be in companies that are led by black CEOs. I think it's great. I think it's a great personal statement, but understand that your returns could deviate from the market. Right. And it might have nothing to do with the CEO. It may be just whatever sector they're in, that sector does well or that sector does badly. And what I want to see is when people make these offers. They're really clear. So when we went, you know, and again, I don't want to pat Vanguard's back too strongly here. Um, <laughs> this was done after my time. But when we came out with a, a broader array of ESG funds, one of the first things we put in there is your returns could vary significantly from that of the broader market. You'll be above, some periods you'll be below. We made no claims that it was, and, and you'll see so many of the factor-based ETFs and they just back-tested stuff and roll it out and say, "Here, invest in this, and you're going to outperform." <laughs> and right. guess what happens? It doesn't work going forward, and, and everybody's like puzzled. It's you know back testing by definition it's backward looking. You're not it, it says nothing about the future. So as long as you're clear about that, and I think again it goes back to the earlier thing we were talking about on the fee side. Transparency is really important, and the great thing is, and this, a lot of the fintech companies a lot of your generation the students coming through they're demanding transparency and that transparency i think will make the markets a much better place
0: yeah and on that transparency point i mean that's just where robin hood got destroyed the message and clarity coming from vlad and their team in the first few days was abysmal they got roasted by everyone from like cnbc to aoc and barstool sports People in my generation just felt like they got cheated. and I, I think actually people outside of my generation too, even you know, my family kind of knew that there's something not right here. So you know, even if they don't know what pay for order flow where or the Greeks are, it just didn't sit right because nobody knew what the heck was going on.
1: Yeah, and you know, who knows what's really going on there. But yeah, <laughs> you know, when your payment for order flow is coming through one of the biggest hedge funds in the world, you know it's, again, people needed to know that. They really needed to understand who was on the other side of that equation. So, you know, more to come, but it's exciting to see. And, and, you know, one of the things for me that's so much fun is, you know, having lived through a lot of different eras, if you will, in the markets, to see so much energy around fintech is really neat. You know, I've, I've seen healthcare, I've seen, you know, technology itself, but to actually see fintech and People applying really advanced technology and, and different ways of thinking and innovation and creativity to something that's so fundamental to how we make our way through the world. It's been
0: really fun to see. Right. It's just such an exciting time. And I couldn't be happier to be in the fintech industry right now. So, you know, on that point, last question here you yourself have made a bet on fintech by joining the board of a company called Altruist. What is this company that poached Bill McNabb to get onto their board? Yeah, so Altros is a cool company. And again, I sort of stumbled upon it by accident, uh, to be honest. Um,
1: individual I knew at one of the VC firms sort of connected me to one of his partners who said, Hey, I think this is a really cool company. So Altros is trying to create a custody platform that's very differentiated from the traditional custody providers for advisors. So, as you know, in the wealth management side, despite all the trading going on at Robinhood or Vanguard success frankly you know with our huge retail client base 70% of the wealth market flows through financial advisors and there's actually a, a convergence going on between digital and human there as well a whole another topic but one of the things altruist is trying to do is build a platform for those advisors that's more efficient more transparent and frankly lower cost so that they can pass more value back to their end clients, and the founder of the company has vast experience. He was an advisor. He lived in that world. He built up a really good little RIA business, and which was, you know, bought and subsumed into a bigger firm. But uh, the the idea of doing this, what appealed to me was he was looking at a problem and basically saying, how can we disrupt a market that has massive incumbents, but do it in a way that, you know, it's not disruption for the sake of disruption. It's disruption to benefit the end consumer. Kind of sounds like Vanguard in a different part of the business. And um, I'm trying to spend my time on things where there's innovation, there's disruption, and then there's this purpose-driven element to what any organization does. So I'm on the board. I'm like the yeah, there's a, v, a venture capitalist, me, and the founder, and uh, we're very early, but uh, so far, Touchwood, um, you know, it's very exciting to see the receptivity in the marketplace. The team is doing a great job. You know, get any really sharp engineering friends who also have an idea, have a mind for finance, and want to go to California? And well, actually, can do it from anywhere now. But uh, you know, work with a startup. Let me know. I think it's going to be a, a really cool business over time.
0: Yeah. Really interesting company. I'll be sure to link them in the medium article and episode description. So Bill, in closing, you have reached the final part of the episode, which is of course the rapid fire question round. We've got a handful of questions for you. Are you ready? Yep. This this is the biggest challenge I'm going to face. (laughs) We'll start with an easy one. How did you spend your first week after retiring? Getting a new puppy. Oh, nice. What kind of dog? Black Lab. All right, next one. What would it take to get you out of retirement? Um, not happening. <laughs> I this is more than ten seconds. That's fine. I
1: had the most blessed career, thirty two years at Vanguard. You know, I love it. I'm in a different phase now. It's I'm trying to help as many different CEOs, leadership teams, and companies as I can. If I wanted to be in the game, I should never have left Vanguard. But it was time for a new leader. You know, it was just it was the right time.
0: How about the toughest day of work that you ever had?
1: Toughest day of work that I ever had? Ever. Boy, there's so many. I would say the first day of the GFC, Monday morning, I think it was September 15th, Lehman Monday, if you will. Yeah. Yeah. I was giving my first speech to a broad group of Vanguard clients, and this was unfolding. And I was talking about the need to be patient, long-term oriented and avoid the noise in the marketplace.
0: Thoughts on cryptocurrency and blockchain?
1: I'm not informed enough. I'm skeptical at one level. Again, as you know, blockchain, I think, is transformative and cryptocurrency is an expression of that. And so does it have a place? Probably, but I don't know enough about it at this point. The speculation around it really worries me.
0: All right, now, how about favorite book you ever read? I've heard that you're a huge reader. Favorite business
1: book is definitely Good to Great. Favorite investment book is uh, Jack Brennan's Guide to Investments. Uh, Straight Talk uh, is what do you call it? Straight Talk on Investments. Favorite historical, there's lots of stuff. The Odyssey is probably at the top of my list. Uh, favorite back science back. fiction book. Uh, I'm worried about the movie, but I'm still a huge fan of Dune. Oh yeah.
0: The movie was a huge bust, right? Back in the
1: day. First one was, we'll see what the new one is, but I think the best sci fi novel ever written. Mm-hmm. I did a whole podcast on books, Bloomberg Radio. We spent an hour and a half comparing notes on
0: different books. I love reading, I love fiction as well as biography and so forth. So, all right. Last question here, Bill. Let's say the whole world is vaccinated, everything is back to, you know, 2019. Where is the first big vacation you and the family go on?
1: There's a two-part answer to this. So the whole family to probably be, we need to go back to Hawaii. We, as a group, have really fond memories and my kids are now grown. I've got grandkids. So everybody wants to go back. And that was actually in the plan. I'm going back to Africa as soon as I can oh, and awesome. spend a lot of time in Kenya in particular, and probably down in the Maasai Mara. Awesome. What did you do there? So I've been on a number of safaris. I'm the chair of the Philly Zoo and have gotten pretty deep on the wildlife thing. And I think the next trip I go, we're we're actually, I'm working with two women who are trying to, you know, one of whom is an elephant whisperer and the other one is trying to build a rhino sanctuary. And those are probably my two biggest passions in
0: wildlife. So I'm going to go hang out with them. Well, Bill, this was fantastic. It was great to have you on today's episode of the Wharton FinTech podcast. I'm excited to re listen to this one myself and, of course, share this with our global audience. So, thank you from one Wharton student to a Wharton alum.
1: Hey, Ryan, thanks and uh, good luck with everything. Um, You know, I continue to love everything coming out of Wharton. Most importantly, what I see in the students, it's just very gratifying to watch how the student body has evolved and the kinds of questions and thoughts you guys all have and the businesses you're running and you know, getting involved in. It's just great. So thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review. And if you're looking for more fintech content, subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Medium at Wharton Fintech. There you will find articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. I've linked our accounts in the episode description. I would also like to thank our editor, Rafael Ostria, for his incredible work on our episodes. Signing off, I'm your host, Ryan out.